ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Morelle Day invents stories. She's won a Ned Kelly Lifetime Award for her crime novels and her gothic tale, Lambs of God, was recently turned into a TV series. But Morelle's own life story has had its share of dramatic twists, dangerous adventures and mysterious characters. When Morelle was a young woman in Sydney, she fell in love with Tony. It was the 1970s, and for Tony and Morelle, it seemed like they could rewrite all the rules of what life was supposed to be. They moved to a ramshackle house on the New South Wales coast and were very happy together. Then one rainy morning, Tony died in a car accident. He was just 28 years old. Morelle was torn apart by grief and lost from herself. She ended up travelling with a friend to North Queensland, and in Cairns, the two spontaneously joined the crew of a yacht. After they anchored in Darwin, Morel and her friend switched boats, joining the crew of a catamaran, skippered by a Frenchman named Jean Kay. And his story turned out to be wilder than anything Morel could have ever invented. She's written a book about Jean and about that time's long tale in her life. It's called Reckless. Hi, Morel. Hi, Sarah. This book, as I say, is called Reckless. Were you raised to, to be a girl to take risks? No, completely the opposite, actually. The message that I got from a very early age was that the world was a dangerous place. Don't go outside the fence. Don't play on the road. And above all, do not get into cars with strange men. Um, so what do I do as soon as I had a bit of a freedom? I got into it, not a car with a strange man, but a boat with a strange man. <laughs> what did your parents think of your relationship with this first great love with Tony? Uh, they were very disapproving of it. We were living in sin. Was that, that was the way my mother described it. She wanted us to get married and do all of that kind of thing. But, you know, we, it was the 70s. We were rewriting the rules. Marriage was a bourgeois institution. It turned a man into a husband and a, a woman into a wife. So that was fairly traumatic as well. But I'd had Tony by my side to cope with that. He also came from a family that disowned him because of being a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War, etc. And his father had been, like mine, a World War II veteran. And that was completely rebellious on his behalf to have done something, you know, against the family tradition. At the, the end of that awful year when Tony died, you got a writing grant from the Australia Council. What did you spend the money on? <laughs> Well, if anybody from the Australia Council is listening, <laughs> I did do the work. <laughs> but part of it was spent on buying an old Mercedes-Benz 220S, the second-hand car that I bought from a friend, and it was a bit of an old rattle trap, and it was very large, and I was quite small. Probably bit off a bit more than I could chew with that car. A bit was spent on champagne as well, I, I think, Morel. Yes, that's true. There, I think there was a crate of champagne involved, which I drank most of. <laughs> well, you and a friend drove up in this in this old Mercedes up to Cairns, where you met someone at the youth hostel who invited you to come and work on a yacht with him. Had you spent much time on boats? I'd never actually been on a yacht. 
ironically enough, I met Tony on a boat, but it was one of those harbour cruises that went around Sydney Harbour. But I'd never really been on something that was wind-powered or had sails, so... Uh, but why not? Um, you know, I was ready to set off and have an adventure and running from the grief to a certain extent, sometimes not making good decisions. I made the decision, the big decision uh, at some point in that grief early on, about a year after Tony had died, when the anniversary came up again and all the visual reminders were still there that the place I was in was a terrible place and I had to decide to either die or live and I chose to live and this was part of the living. I had no idea how to do it and probably I um, did it more extremely than I would have, certainly more extremely than my parents would have liked me to. So you, you joined this first boat in Cairns but things didn't work out there and you, you ditched this this yacht and, and its skipper in Darwin where a woman invited you to join her on a different boat. What was that boat, the O'Cat, like the first time you stepped inside? How did it seem to you? Oh, it was wonderful. It recalled for me one of my favourite childhood television shows, which was called Adventures in Paradise. And it had um, a wonderful, adventurous, tall, dark and handsome skipper called... Adam Troy, that was a character's name, and the actor was Gardner McKay. And he sailed the South Pacific and had great adventures, and I wanted some of that. I'm not sure if I was in love with him or in love with the life. And when I first stepped on board OCAT, Jean was in a similar position. This is the skipper, Jean Kay. Jean Kay, the skipper of OCAT. He wasn't as tall, dark and handsome, and there was none of that romantic frisson for me. But he was this larger-than-life character. A call to adventure was the first, the first feeling that I had from him. There was an elemental empathy between the two of us as well, which I've kind of thought about later. The boat itself, it reminded me of Adventures in Paradise too. When you entered the cabin, it was like being in a laid-back casino. <laughs> there was blue toweling curtains on the windows, there was a uh, blue and red carpet. The cushions had, uh, the blue cushions had red Tahitian hibiscus on them. It was so much like Adventures in Paradise, I thought my dream had come true. Books and music too? Yes. That, what a bonus that was because on the first boat there had been no books and, and no music that I recall. Um, I didn't see what the books were for a start, but I knew there were books there and they looked like novels. Uh, and he had the music that we liked too, um, Jacques Prel, a, f- a French singer, Pink Floyd, Neil, Neil Young. Young, yes, all of those 70s, Santana. And Jean the Skipper there, what, what did he look like? He, he was dressed like Gardner McKay. He was dressed only in trousers the first time with, his, you know, there's cuffs rolled up. So bronze having sailed from the other half, you know, other side of the world, this mop of unruly hair and uh, that he looked at you from under and had quite prominent eyebrows too. These extremely dark eyes, dark brown eyes that you never knew what was going on inside that head. They revealed nothing, but they had a very piercing glance that saw right inside of you. So he was charismatic, Morel? He was charismatic. But I wasn't 
I wasn't swept away by that. I think when I saw thought that there was an elemental empathy, part of it was sure he was the call to adventure, and the other thing was that I felt somehow equal to him. But in charisma, there is a you know a more superior character to another one. There's a you know a charismatic figure, and the other one's a fan. It never felt like that ever with Jean and, and myself. And I think it was because having taken that journey into grief and still being there in a way, that wasteland of grief, that like him, I had seen beyond the horizon. And as I got to know him, I realised he had trauma in his life too that I think we both related to deaths. He had deaths in his life too. Where was he heading on this, OCAT? Where were you signing up to to sail to? Uh, To go to Sri Lanka, from Darwin to Sri Lanka. That was the plan, (laughs) but we didn't quite make it there. Well, tell me about your first days at sea on the OCAT. What were they like? Well, they were somewhat halcyon, despite the fact that we got storms most days. We had been given advice, um, or Jean had been given advice by the yachties in Darwin, oh, not a good time of year to be sailing that direction, mate. Uh, You know, winds and tides are against you. And in fact, this was the same time of year that Cyclone Tracy had obliterated Darwin five years before we were there. But Jean was a risk taker and he said, it's a lucky boat. OCAT is a lucky boat. He's a lucky we'll boat. Okay. So I am French. Just the ocean will do as I say. That's right. <laughs> exactly. I will shout at it and it will behave. You set off in November and after Christmas you entered the doldrums. Do you mean that literally? Literally and metaphorically. That zone near the equator, I think it's on both sides of the equator, there's hardly any wind because in the southern hemisphere the winds are prevailing winds are going in one direction, in the northern hemisphere the other. And in that zone of switchover, there's very little wind. And sailors of old who didn't have motor power would often talk about the doldrums. And it, I suppose it then became a metaphorical meaning too of being not moving forward, of of being depressed, of being in the one place all the time. And it was probably around that time that the ship was breaking up. We were already travelling uh, with a wounded ship. Breaking up? What do you mean? What was happening to the, to well, the ship? we were travelling against the winds and the currents and the catamaran uh, doesn't fare well in those conditions, as we found out. Because it's got that area between the hulls that... Uh, is somewhat more sensitive, it's above the water, but it kept getting thwacked by waves and the storms and all of this led to the boat starting to break up. Sometimes you could actually see the the seams were starting to part and you could actually see the sea down below. Oh, my goodness. The water was coming in the windows as well uh, and we kind of got along with it. You know, when when the storm had passed, we would just... The boat was upright, it never never was submerged at any point. And we just acclimatised ourselves to these gradual deteriorating conditions. Were you bucketing out water? That was something we had to do each day was to uh, empty the bilges and bucketing out water by hand. We had a, a, a pipe as well to do it, but ended up doing that. It was quite 
backbreaking work, only to have, you know, like Sisyphus at all fill up <laughs> again the next day and to repeat that task as well. What was the mood like between there was, there was you and your friend and Jean and this other uh, two other young sailors or, or young people travelling on this boat? Things had started, you know, joyfully, Neil Young's on the, on the um, cassette player. How was the atmosphere shifted by this point? Yeah, well, it did start off, we were having a party and because it being Christmas, we had celebrated Christmas, we celebrated New Year, we celebrated Jean's birthday. So it was, you know, very much party time. But, and I think overall that uh, from other accounts I've read of people, strangers getting on the boat and sailing somewhere, it could have been a lot worse. We argued about food, about you know, you're having too much muesli and I didn't get my share of muesli. We argued about dirty dishes being left in the sink, all the kinds of things that, you know, students might argue about in a shared house. But nothing ever came to blows uh, and I've read accounts where that has happened and, and crew will ostracise one member. I mean, it can be devastating. It never, ever got that bad and in the end we realised we we were literally on the same boat together and we had to try and get on. Well, it, the situation developed to an extent that you thought you were going to need to abandon ship. What happened? That was the worst day, probably. And I think we were on rations by that time and quite lethargic. And there'd been a big storm and... We, we woke up this morning and I saw water running down the galley steps. So it was coming from somewhere, even more water than we had. It got into the food. Uh, we had wet spaghetti, you know, wet everything. So Jean had said, you better grab your passports. We might have to get into the lifeboat. It was that serious. And so we're all looking at each other, goggled eye. I mean, this is a moment, this is a moment we could die. And you're in the, just the middle of the ocean? In the middle of the ocean and it's emptiness, you know, it's blue emptiness. There's sky and sea and that's all you can see. So did, uh, you, get, did you get in the lifeboat? What happened? No. Weirdly enough, I mean, it, when you think of the word lifeboat, you think that's going to save your life. But somehow to shift from our position where we were on this wrecked boat that was our home to go to another unknown Nobody wanted to do that and no one was rushing to get into that lifeboat. That Jean had also, as an aside, said at one point, oh, I've never tested the lifeboat. It can sink for all I know the minute we get in, in it. And one of the other crew members said, what do we need to take? And he said, oh, nothing. There's, there's water and glucose biscuits on board. It's part of the kit. And then Jean trying to go dive down and look at the major damage and he sort of did a makeshift repair of it. He decided that perhaps if we got to land somewhere that possibly he could fix, do, do some repairs. So, so Jean consulted the pilot book and found that there was a, a sandbank near Borneo, so we headed towards that. And what did the, the locals think of this little catamaran of foreigners turning up? Well, it was okay for the first night and we were glad to see that there was some driftwood on the island that at high tide it wasn't submerged, that we could 
finally walk around at some point. And so, you know, just have, having a little bit of a safe anchorage was great. We could see land on the horizon uh, and we could make out enough, it was like a thin grey pencil stroke of land, but there were a couple of thatched huts that we could make out in the distance too. Anyway, that was all night, all right. We slept the first night and the next morning we had visitors and it was probably five canoes, ten men in each, who just came and in front of the boat. Now, we had the sandbank behind us, these canoes in front. If we needed to escape, where could we go? There was no escape at that point. But we didn't know what they wanted. Um, they could have been friendly. They could have been just seeing, you know, if we needed help. But that isn't how it panned out. They were quite unfriendly. We had a barking dog on our boat, which I think kept them at bay. And this kind of went on for hours. The the female crew members were downstairs. Jean had told us to go downstairs. So there was only the other male crew member and the dog and Jean on board. But it seemed to be hours and hours of this face-off and no progress being made. At one point, one of the men tried to board the boat and Jean put up his hand quite, you know, authoritatively and said no. And the dog really went off and started barking. And what he said then in sign language to the person that looked like the the, the leader of the, might be a step too far to call them pirates, the locals, um, we need food, we will come to the village, uh, we will come with you to the village. And they seemed okay with that. They seemed to understand. The, the, the guy repeated the gestures and he, he understood that. So when the canoes rode off and we were supposed to follow, we just hightailed it out into the high seas and left. And I still don't know to this day whether we might have been parking in their fishing ground, you know, in their, in their driveway. We were fairly close. We just pulled up not knowing where we were, or they might have been pirates and were looking. they were looking over the ship quite furtively and deciding after all that, you know, a ship that was falling to pieces probably wasn't worth pirating. Where did you manage to land next then in this ship, which was, as you say, falling to pieces? Well, that was the worst encounter and next was the best encounter. And we were so tired by this point too, the night before we'd been up all night, you know, wrestling with the with the wind, etc. And where we we could see palm trees now and we actually got up quite close to this island. It was a, a, a series of islands called the Karamata Islands. I think they belong to Indonesia now, but they're quite a long way from the other islands of, of Indonesia. And we'd only just pulled up and sort of heard the swish of the boat on the sand. And then came a little rowing boat with three men in it, an an older man, a younger man and a a middle-aged man. And we thought, if they're pirates, we don't care. You know, we were so tired. We were exhausted. We were too exhausted to care. But they seemed quite friendly. And we ended up going ashore with them to their huts. If they had ever seen non-Indonesians before... It hadn't been very frequently because the women were putting their arm up against ours and comparing the colour, you know, dark and light. 
our very short hair because we'd all cut our, our hair really short because it was hard to wash. We only had seawater to wash it in. So all of us had, you know, short cropped hair like convicts. <laughs> and they looked at the hair and one woman undid her bun and her, you know, black hair cascaded right down her back. And we decided then that we would exchange our, some of our goods for food. So they came back to the boat laden with food, hands of bananas, pineapple, a live chicken, which was amazing, <laughs> uh, some eggs. And so they just came onto the boat as if it was, you know, a sale. It was like a shopping mall and this, <laughs> the doors had just opened for a sale and started grabbing everything, and things that we needed to continue the voyage. So we were trying to hide things like cameras and clocks and echo sounders and give them clothes and magazines and aspirins in exchange for their food. So Jean managed to repair the boat. Were you still planning on on making it to Sri Lanka? Uh, No. Because of the state of the boat, it already started to deteriorate by that point. Jean decided to stay close to not go out into the middle of the Indian Ocean and and go to Sri Lanka, but to stay close to the Indonesian islands and go that way up to Singapore. So you eventually then landed in Singapore, which is where you left the OCAT Morella. How long had you been on board by that stage? All up, and that includes a week or so before we actually left Darwin, three months, and it should have taken about two weeks. (laughs) And after that, that day that you climbed on to land in Singapore, was that the last time that you slept on board the OCAT? No, not entirely. Jean and another crew member stayed on and the, the other three of us left and went our separate ways. I'd had enough of the boat by this time. So I caught a plane to Sri Lanka, which is where the boat was, was originally going to go and, and which Jean had intended to go after Singapore I travelled around Sri Lanka by myself and met up with different people as you do when you're travelling by yourself. Stayed there, I'm not sure how much time altogether, six weeks, two months, and then eventually Jean and the other crew member arrived and I got to sleep on OCAT one more time. And what did he hand over to you? What had he been keeping safe for you on that sea journey? Yes, so... As a guarantee that I would stay in Sri Lanka and wait for them till they arrived, I left my typewriter on board. And uh, Jean also wanted me to leave my diary on board. (laughs) I said, no, no, that's staying with me. Um, So the typewriter, which has, you know, sort of represented my writing self, I suppose, did complete the voyage with him and he handed it over to me in Sri Lanka. How much did John tell you about himself on those three months you spent together at sea? Very little. Uh, I would find out later that he was on the run. Uh, much later I'd find that out. How, how did you discover on board that he had more than one name? Uh, well, I had in Darwin I had gone with him to do all the bureaucratic stuff about ship's departure and all of that. So I'd seen his passport and I saw that the name in the passport was Jean, Jean de Rayet. And I noticed uh, the books on the shelves and being a, a writer, I just went straight to them. They were in French, 
But I noticed on one of the books there was this author photo and it was a photo of Jean. <laughs> but the name of the author was Jean K, not the same as the name that was in the passport. So that night I I was on watch and he was replacing me and we had that moment of, of, of changing over and I said, um, oh, do you write under a pseudonym? I told him what I'd seen. He said, no, I travel under a pseudonym. Podcast, broadcast and online. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Morel, what are the facts of, of Jean's life? Was he born in France? He was a French citizen. Uh, he was born in Algeria. So this is when Algeria was still a French colony? Yes, it was during the war, uh, 1943, and his father was a career soldier and the French army was stationed out of France once the Vichy government took over. Jean did tell you that he had spent much of his life fighting. Was he a member of the French army then? Yeah, he started off in the French army, stationed in Algeria, and that was during the time, it was just pre-independence, that change over time. And he was very unhappy about his role as a soldier. He was just being more like a policeman, um, you know, patrolling the streets. And he also was not happy about France relinquishing its prize colony. And so he joined the secret army organisation, which was stationed in Spain. And what, what was that? What did that oh, that mean? was a, an ultra-right-wing terrorist organisation that was against Algerian independence and was doing its best to keep it a colony and including assassinating Algerian citizens. So this fighting, not for an official army, but for a kind of paramilitary organisation, that led to other mercenary roles. Where else did he fight? I think the next one after that, and by this time he had a wife and a pregnant wife. The next one was in Yemen and one of the people who'd been with him in the secret army, one of the leaders there, had found him and asked him if he wanted a job as a mercenary. And this was Jean's great chance to be a warrior. I suppose he imagined himself to be Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> it was the desert. He'd not seen any real fighting as, as, as a trained soldier he was. And so he went there. He also was a mercenary in Biafra and uh, Cabinda, which was a province of Angola. So although he appeared to you as this kind of 70s hippie on, on the boat, he wasn't a freedom fighter. He, he was a, a mercenary on behalf of, of colonial powers. Absolutely. And it's a strange thing to discover that, which I discovered on the boat. And I've always wondered about this. If you find out something... I mean, I'm sure there are deal breakers. You find out something unacceptable to yourself about someone that you really like and have got to know well. What do you do? I mean, I, I didn't quite have that moral dilemma. I mean, I, I'd been, if anything, more a left-wing supporter and certainly Tony had been being a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War. Um, and here I am 
best friends with this ultra-right-wing terrorist. He said that when he was fighting in Biafra and saw the terrible effects of that famine there, that had a real impact on him. How did that have a consequence in 1971? In 1971, there was another situation, another war that created a lot of refugees, and that was the Bangladeshi Liberation War. And so what Jean decided to do was hijack a plane to get medical supplies for those 10 million refugees that were marching towards the border. Where was the plane that he hijacked? The plane was in Orly, which is one of Paris's airports. Jean deliberately boarded his plane, which is a Pakistani Airlines plane, that <laughs> Pakistan was the enemy, late, and some of the security had already been folded up, and they just did a search of his bag, and all they found in the bag was a, a Bible and um, an electric razor and a few other things. They, he didn't go through a metal detector at that point, so they didn't find the gun that he had nestled into his waistband. How did the hijacking proceed? What happened? Well, he waited till the... He went to his seat. Uh, he counted the number of passengers, the number of crew, so he knew what he had to deal with. He waited till the doors were shut and the, the plane just began to taxi and then he stood up in the first-class section. He went to first-class and um, said, presumably, this is a hijack, showed his gun. He kept his bag with him. He had two wires from the um, electric shaver. He'd manoeuvred them out, and so it looked like he was keeping them apart. Should they touch, the bomb would go off. It wasn't really a bomb, but that's what the message was. And in the cockpit, he was trying to tell the, the pilot and co-pilot in there that it was a hijacking, and his accent in English was so heavy, God, they what? couldn't understand oh, what well. he was saying. <laughs> and it, it, at that Mr. point, Bean it, moment. it just terrible. could have descended into a Woody Allen movie. Oh. Um, so then he called for the French speaker, any, if, if there were any French speakers on the plane, and a Swiss man, a friendly Swiss man came forward and acted as the interpreter. And what was he demanding? He was demanding several tonnes of anti-cholera and other medication in exchange for the passengers' and crews' lives. How did this hijacking end then? Well, I think they were on the tarmac for about seven hours. He kept them there and one load of medication arrived and the whole thing was so slow and eventually dressed in airport workers' uniforms, the cops came on board and overcame him, pummeled him to the ground. The gun went off. He lightly grazed one of the policemen. He was on remand in jail for about eight months till French bureaucracy. The tail of the plane was in one local <coughs> government division and the head of the plane was in another <laughs> and they spent about eight months trying to work out which local government division to try him in. <laughs> Anyway, once they did that, he went to court and André Malraux, who was quite a famous French writer and at that time he was also, I think, culture minister and a, he had other, other claims to fame as well, spoke on Jean's behalf and said 
this man has saved 600,000 lives. Because what, did the did some of that medicine end up making its way to Bangladesh? Eventually it did, yes. Even though the hijacker was apprehended, there was such an outcry about the situation in Bangladesh that the Red Cross ended up sending that medication that he'd asked for to Bangladesh, yeah. It feels like a very 1970s kind of thing, Morel, this mix of idealism and naivete and and violence. It seems something very much of that era. It is a thing of its place and uh, of its time and place. And also around that time, and I remember this vividly, George Harrison decided to have a concert for Bangladesh and, you know, the funds went to Bangladesh. So there was that mix of direct action and it was it was a thing in the 70s, direct action would produce results. So Jean told you about this hijacking, that it hijacked a plane as you were all on board the OCAT in the middle of the ocean. Yes. <laughs> what did you think at the time? Well, it was was bizarre because, you know, we'd, we'd played Scrabble with this man and backgammon and we chatted and suddenly he comes out with this extraordinary story. So he told you about the hijacking, but he didn't tell you why he was a fugitive at that time, that he was on the run because of a different crime, another crime he'd been involved in. What crime was he involved in? In 1976, he was involved in a bank heist where he and his partners in crime got away with 8 million francs, which in today's money would be worth about 10 million US dollars. What? How did they pull this off? Well, Jean's main partner in crime, Hervé de Vater, was one of the chief accountants for France's richest man at the time, Marcel Dassault. Dassault was a manufacturer of aeroplanes. They still manufacture airplanes and he had other interests as well. And Hervé de Vater was one of the few people who could sign checks on behalf of his boss. So the accountant was somewhat dissatisfied with his role at work because he had to do a lot of creative accounting. Uh There was a lot of bribery growing on and corporate fraud and paying politicians and tax avoidance. And he was increasingly dissatisfied with what he had to do there. And so it wasn't so much a matter of the money. It was to teach the richest man in France a lesson, to bring him down a so, notch or two. So how on earth did this accountant, Ove, who I imagine was a sort of pinnacle of bourgeois French establishment, how did he meet Jean, who'd already spent time in jail for hijacking a plane to send medicine to Bangladesh? Yes, well, this is where worlds collide. <laughs> uh, like quite a number of um, respectable bourgeois Frenchmen, the accountant had a mistress and this was a a bar girl that he'd met in a bar on the Champs-Élysées and her best friend was Jean's lover. So... So through their girlfriends, they met one another. through their girlfriends, basically. And formed a friendship or... And formed a, a most unlikely friendship to this respectable bourgeois accountant and a hijacker. I think they were both odd ones out in their own circle. Jean didn't feel that comfortable with the mercenary company anymore. 
and Hervé was a dreamer and, and a, um, he was interested in, in spiritualism and all kinds of other things. And I could just imagine the talks that the two of them would have had together. I think they found kindred souls in that uh, apartment. So how did they carry off this heist? They decided they wanted to get 8 million francs from this aeronautical magnate. Well, how did that day proceed? What happened? Well, it was all carefully planned. <laughs> but then, of course, life doesn't go according to plan. So the idea was for Elve to go into the bank, sign the cheque, come back with the money. and In, in cash, like banknotes. In cash. Eight million francs. Eight million francs. It was 160,000 notes. It, how how they, do you even carry that? I mean, just physically, that's a lot to lug around. It was extremely difficult, as Elve found out when he tried to lug these two bags of cash. There were a number of glitches that made this perfect plan go wrong. Elve had frequently gone to the bank and got cash, signed cheques and got cash and taken it back to the office for bribes. It was a slush fund cash. But this time it was a significantly higher amount than normal. Took a little bit longer to assemble, but it was put in the boot of his car and the bank manager said, oh, look, you know, I'll just escort you back to the office in my car to make sure you get back there okay because, you know, this is a larger amount of money than normal. Someone might have seen seen us putting it in the boot, etc. And, of course, Elve didn't want this because he wasn't going back to the bank. He had a hire car waiting in another street. He was trying to say to the bank manager, no, it's okay, like, I'm, I'll be fine. And the bank manager insisted on following him and so in the middle of the Champs-Élysées, Hervé stops. He doesn't go all the way to the office, which is down the other end of the Champs-Élysées. He stops in the middle of the road, gets out of the car, much to the astonishment of the bank manager who's in another car, goes round to the boot, opens the boot, heaves out these two really heavy bags. I mean, the first one he had to have a couple of goes at getting out, but I imagine he was so drenched with adrenaline, you know, he was Superman, lifted up the bags, crossed the road and disappeared into an arcade. Oh, my goodness. And what was his plan then? I mean, that just sounds like he's acting in panic if he knows that there's a bank manager on his tail and he's supposed to be going back to the office. There was a hire car waiting. So I think what he was going to do was not go through the, the arcade, of course, but to drive around to where the hire car was waiting, drive it out, put his own car in that parking spot and head off. Hervé believed that it was unlikely that he'd be prosecuted or that, that, his, that his manager, who's all this money was, would, would want to prosecute him or let the police know. Why was that? Why did he think he'd be able to get away with this sort of outrageous withdrawal of 8 million yeah. francs? He'd been compiling this dossier of illegal transactions and bribes, etc., that had been taken place uh, over a number of years. And he thought that was their passport to safety. So the plan was get the money, go to the hire car and drive to an appointed place where the, where the four partners in crime, Hervé and Jean and their two girlfriends, would then rendezvous and Hervé would phone, of course it had to be a public phone, there were no mo mobiles then, would phone Dasso and say, don't follow me, I've compiled a dossier. And Dasso would automatically understand what that meant, that he had evidence of all these shady dealings. But, of course, when they 
got to the place where they were making the phone call and ironically enough it was in Orly Airport where Jean had done the hijacking. <laughs> Perhaps he felt better on familiar terrain. Uh, Elve made the phone call to Dasso's home. Dasso was homesick that day but too sick to come to the phone. So he gave the wife a message and he had to repeat it a couple of times. Tell, tell them not to follow me. I've compiled a dossier. So he kept repeating this and saying, a dossier, I've compiled a dossier. <laughs> and so he came back to the table where the others were waiting to say, oh, I didn't speak to Mr Dasso, but I gave the message to his wife. I'm sure she'll pass it on. I'm sure she'll pass it on. Well, between the bank manager following him and noticing that he just leaves the car in the middle of the road and takes off with the money and this not being able to actually make the blackmail claim directly to to Dasso, they were sort of not where they planned to be in this perfect heist. The two couples were meant to then meet up again with the cash. What happened? This is the third glitch. They may have possibly got away with it with these first two. They could have disappeared. This third glitch was Jean and his girlfriend, Danny, not turning up at the appointed place. It was a a spa town on the Swiss border. And I think Danny had said, oh, let's spend a few days on our own and then we will join them again. There was another rendezvous point in Greece. And... I think that they felt that Hervé's girlfriend might have been a bit of a loose cannon. Once she saw the amount of money that they had stolen, she freaked out a little bit. So I think they just wanted to sort of calm it down a bit. But, of course, Jean not turning up at the appointed rendezvous point absolutely panicked Hervé. He was not a criminal. He was a clean skin. He was not used to dealing with this kind of thing. And he was relying on Jean's savoir-faire and experience and chutzpah to get him through. On his own, he couldn't really do it. Now, before they had parted company after the phone call, you know, the two couples got into their two separate cars, Jean had said what would be his last words to Hervé. If you run into any difficulties, blame me. I've been in jail before. I've done the time. And so what Hervé did was blame Jean well and truly, as I say, (sighs) nailed him to the wall. As Jean had told me this later, he was (laughs) as upset as I've ever seen Jean get that Hervé had so completely put the blame onto Jean. So Hervé eventually gave himself up. You know, he spent some months on the run, but it was stressful and scary and whatever reason he decided to give himself up and he did time in jail and Jean was sentenced in absentia to to seven years in jail. What happened to the eight million francs? Yes, well, that was the million-dollar question. The eight million-dollar question. to the eight million (laughs) francs? Uh, Jean and Danny, his girlfriend, first of all, they, they bought a red Alfa Romeo and she bought lots of, you know, so, shoes and jewellery. So and, no uh, medicine jewelry. for Bangladesh this time? Alfa no, Romeos no, and no, no, high this, heels? This time it was uh, the humanitarian was giving to these four poor people. <laughs> so they split the money, four million francs each. So they rush through the night in this Alfa Romeo and deposit the rest of it in Swiss bank accounts. 
So this was the crime that Jean was on the run from when you met him on board the OCAT. He'd spent, you know, a number of years by this stage really just on the high seas, moving moving around the world from one port to the other. Though he was eventually allowed to return to France after the statute of limitations had passed and he, he did end up returning there and, and marrying, I think, for the third time and, and basing himself in France. And that was where, after 30 years, you decided to meet up with him again. Why did you want to see him? Well, we'd kept in touch for a few years after the, the, the sea voyage and then he dropped out of communication and re-emerged again in the digital age and he was able to send an email to my publishers. By that time, I was a published writer and, and I remember the publicist sending, forwarding his email and saying, it sounds a bit weird. He sounds a bit weird. I, we can deal with it if you like. And I thought, oh, a bit weird. You so have <laughs> nailed Jean. <laughs> uh, so we, we started corresponding again um, by email this time. And then I was making a trip to France and I thought, I'd like to get in touch with him again now. And now that he wasn't sailing, because I never wanted to get on a boat with him again, ever... <laughs> And uh, I'll just say we'll just catch up for lunch. First of all, he said, just lunch? Nonsense. Come to my place. We can spend a few days there and I'll take you to the Riviera to where my other boat is. (laughs) No, thank you. (laughs) Not going on that boat again. How did he look when you saw him? What was it like to see him walk into that restaurant after all those years? Oh, look, it was a time warp because he... He looked like the 1970s, which I have to say in the 70s, he wasn't quite as unruly as he looked. The hair was much longer then. He had, um, you know, one of those collarless shirts on, an Indian shoulder bag. Uh, he was wearing sandals. I thought that he might turn up bare feet, but he was, that was how he was dressed, the epitome of the 1970s. And did you get on easily? It was as if we just picked up from where we'd left off. We just looked at each other. We didn't do any handshakes or hugs or the French, you know, cheek kissing. We just looked at each other as if, you know, if we if we touched each other, the whole thing might explode or take the magic away. And this this trip where you, you spent time with him and did go and stay at, at what sounds his very lovely home, an original water mill in the, the south of France, where he told you about this heist, this crime in, in 1976, and he ended up wanting you, Morel, to write the book of that period of his life. Was that a hard request to agree to? I thought, oh, my God, here he is handing me a cordon bleu plot and a real person. I could ask him whatever I liked. And so I said yes. He had sent me a short summary, which is about 16 pages of text. And he also sent me a kilo and a half of newspaper clippings oh about the heist, which was gold. I mean, I could have found a bit of it on Google, but not what he sent me. It was amazing to have did that they, material. Did they square up, though, Morel, the 16 pages that Jean had written and what he'd told you and the way it was reported in, in newspapers? Or were you getting two conflicting views of this event? Most of the time it squared up, but there were things that Jean hadn't told me. I mean, he covered quite in quite a lot of detail the day of the heist, the day of grand larceny. 
there was hardly anything on the follow-ups on what happened after, um, which is what the, the information I got from the newspaper clippings. And he had sent me um, a little proviso saying, just remember it's my truth that counts, not the accounts you might read in the newspaper who are just, you know, making things up for their own accounts. But I did start to start to doubt him at times, you know, with what he was telling me. What was the truth? Was there an ultimate capital T truth or was truth only different versions? You and John would send each other greetings at Christmas time. What email then did you get at the start of 2012? Yes, up on my screen came the name, which I thought was Jean K, but it was actually Jeanne K, his daughter. And Jean said, um, Dear Morel, I am Jean K's daughter and I'm writing to you with terrible news. My father passed away on the night of the 23rd of December and that we are all beside ourselves with grief. So he, he died at home in bed, not the death that might have been expected for this mercenary adventurer, hijacker, heister. He had escaped all that, but not his own heart condition. I think that he, he was 69, I think, when he died. And it was like he'd used up all his heartbeats when he was young. What do you think he would make of the story that you've told in Reckless? I've wondered that. Um, in, in a way, the fact that he died before I'd finished writing the book freed me up. I mean, I had always intended to write the truth as I saw it. The fact that he was my friend, I was also a writer and I was going to tell this story as authentically as I could. You encountered him in a kind of a pivotal time in your own life, Morel, when, when you were at a crossroads about how you were going to move forward after the loss of, of Tony. When you look back, how do you think of the, the effect or the influence that knowing Jean has had on your life? It's been an amazing friendship, a friendship that, you know, spanned hemispheres and decades. Um, my life is absolutely richer for having known Jean and for the places that not only he took me geographically but emotionally and, and in the writing of, about him, where that took me too. Um, I have had other adventures, but these were two of the big ones. Well, it's been fascinating to hear about them. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you, Sarah. It's been an absolute pleasure. Morel Day was my guest today and her book about Jean Kay is called Reckless. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Earshot is back with a new season called Follow Me. Meet a doomsday cult leader. When these chastisements happened, hell would be opened and all the devils would walk the earth. I mean, loving the cure now 
diehard music fans. At the tender age of 52. <laughs> and a mother trying to keep her daughter safe and sane online. Restricting and banning just hasn't worked. Come follow Earshot on the ABC Listen app. What path can I follow to not feel this anymore?